Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 93 and audio season 4, episode 38 of Music is Not a Genre. Thank you, as always, for listening and watching. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre or at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. Donations and monthly subscriptions are absolutely welcome at both. My public hub is youtube.com slash nickdimatteo, where you get this podcast and music and more. And the home on my website for every episode of this podcast or the list of, oh my goodness, almost four complete seasons is nickdimatio.com slash podcast. Welcome here, New York City. Beautiful spring days that we've had for most of this week. Really enjoying that and kind of starting to feel the end of the season coming, uh, even though it's the middle of spring. It's the end of uh, this podcast season very soon. This is the, well, third to last episode, I guess you would call it. Uh, I plan on doing 40 this season, which is more than ever, because I've been having a great year uh, podcast-wise and want to share that. And I will probably also have some special things happening over the summer, so it's not totally quiet as I gear up to make some tweaks and changes for season five in the fall. So let's get to this week's topic. Uh, It is, as those of you who are watching can see, Bell and Sebastian, when quiet was the revolution. So I've talked quite often. I tend to repeat topics that are my favorites, which I think is a common thing. And I've talked quite often about cycles. I've talked quite often about how uh, a new kind of music is or even an artist or a song, is almost always an echo of something that came before it. Because if you consider that unless someone is raised by wolves in the woods, lives in a cave and has never you know, encountered any human being, there is nothing in this world that is created in a vacuum. No matter how innovative or experimental or new something is, it was influenced by something else that came before it. And I think it's kind of cool that you know, uh, in my title, I use the word revolution and that in the, the essay that you read below, I start talking about cycles and how everything does run in cycles of various, you know, sizes, macro, micro, nano, epochal, if you want to use that word, you know, as big as you can get and how both revolution and cycle have to do with things coming back around, right? Revolving, uh, and, I think that that's significant here for the band, Bell and Sebastian, but also for the kind of what else I'm throwing into this topic. And, 
you know, some of the things that I wrote down in this essay that I am going to read, I don't often do that, but I, I, I think I like the way I worded them here. Every attention-grabbing shift and movement is a response to something that came before. Complex gives way to simple. So-called high art gives way to so-called low art. You know I hate those distinctions, but they're useful here to just talk about how people and groups of people and the zeitgeist kind of responds to, uh, you know, what came before it and, and you know, is is either building on that or rejecting it and doing something else. And by the way, side note, I'm reading this free paper in New York this week, AM New York, and it was an interview with Benedict Cumberbatch, who I love, and I'm looking forward to seeing that new movie, uh, The New Doctor Strange. And he started talking about the zeitgeist. He mentioned the zeitgeist three different times. And that's a word I've always loved. I've used it a few times. But either they have some kind of an autocorrect system there, or the person doing the editing had never heard the word before. My guess is the first one, because I don't know why anybody would replace it. What happened was that that E... Uh, the the I E or E I I guess um, in Zeitgeist was changed to I N so then the word became zingiest so you'd have to imagine Benedict Cumberbatch repeating the word zingiest which isn't even the most common word uh, just thought I'd throw that in there interesting and fun uh, spelling people spelling. Uh, brash and confrontational gives way to soft and inviting. Very important for this week's topic. Sarcasm and nihilism give way to sincerity and faith. And, you know, every, in, in your life, part, part of, the important part of life is relearning lessons. Now, that doesn't mean you didn't learn anything the first time or second or fifth. It means that each time you come across that same lesson, you're adding to the knowledge you have of it. You're learning something new. You're building upon it. But the truth is that in every life itself, any one person's life goes through cycles, and you're going to have things that come back around that you have to revisit, whether you like it or not, and find a way to reconcile. And if you have been doing your work, which is you know living and growing, then you will find that the next time you come across this, it's going to feel the same in some ways and echo what happened before and what you learned before, but it's going to be different. And that difference comes from context and perspective. And that is absolutely the case with a band like Bell and Sebastian, who I'll, I'll jump ahead a little, even though I've got more to say on this topic of cycles. They hearken back to both the 1960s and 1980s, and I'll get into more detail later on that. And yet, as always, just like with the Elephant Six Collective of the mid-90s and, and beyond, they brought new things to the conversation. So they might have been echoes of older music, but there was something new. And it had to do partly with the sonic qualities and the, and the lyrics, but it also had to do with the context in which it was created. And I'd like to get to this kind of illustration that I'm talking about here having to do with cycles and having to do with how things come back around and how the next thing is, off, is often a response to the thing that came before it. This is a good, a good way to say it. You know, I think I put somewhere in the essay you know, that you could go back really to the first humanoid banging a rock with a bone and liking the sound enough to repeat it or 
vocalizing something and finding that vocalization either pleasant or useful or both and repeating that. And from there, eventually music was formed and every single thing that came after it was built on what came before it or as a response to something before it. And there's been cross-pollination. What we have found in studying languages and cultures is that if you there are yes there are different strains of languages there's the indo-european and and you know the uralic and all of that but at some point they crossed over either before their you know the, their first kind of strongest existence or after in kind of the cross-cultural exchanges that happen. So languages that came from completely different stems have been influenced by other languages, you know, over the hundreds, thousands of years of language development. The same can be said of music, that we may not have been exposed in many ways to music of other cultures for a while, although, you know, trade and people traveling and everything did assist in that. And the more we've become a global civilization, the more we've shared things, and it's so much easier to do that, of course, you're getting that too. But the main point still stands, which is that everything new is is built on everything else that came before it, or versions or pieces, portions of everything else that came before it. And so here's a quick, you know, primer of that from the, the 70s, let's say the mid-70s through... Uh, mid-90s, you know, or maybe mid-0s, even to a certain extent. Punk, as we've been told so many times, among other things, was a response to the bombast of progressive rock and classic rock. It was stripped down and simple. Itself harkened back to the three, four chord progressions of the 1950s and the garage rock, you know, of the 1960s. So again, it's an echo of things that came before it, but it was also a response to what came directly before it. Uh, hair metal was in its own way a response to punk in that it was trying to have more fun with the image, more fun with the music. And, and punk, you know, in many ways is very serious, you know, up until up until the I mean, it wasn't always serious. You had you had funny punk bands and and punk bands that understood humor but the general kind of feeling that punk came into by the time the early 80s mid 80s came around was a seriousness this kind of a straight edge seriousness then that, that that hair metal wanted to poke holes in and poke holes in the metal even that came before it among other things again this is a simplification grunge we've been told was a response to that excess of hair metal and the the, the kind of falsity that uh whatever organic nature it started in with glam and and you know men predominantly men wanting to explore other sides of their uh, physicality and sexuality and appearance and all of that and to expand the music it eventually everything gets codified to the point where it becomes sort of a if not a parody of itself then kind of rigidified in a way that does it a disservice and that has certainly happened with hair metal. And so grunge came along to kind of poke holes in that. But then you get to what we're talking about this week, which is one of my favorite words ever since I used to write poetry, which is twee. Just saying the word itself is twee. 
And go ahead and look up a definition because I'm not going to be your dictionary here. But that idea of things kind of being precious and soft and delicate, you know, carefully expressed even. And indie pop and another strain of music, post-rock, both of which existed before grunge. Uh, I mean, grunge existed before grunge, if you want to get right down to it. What we know of as grunge existed before it became popular for many years. Uh, Those two quieter versions of music came along and started to take more hold in the zeitgeist, really, and in like popular culture in the in the mid '90s and especially late '90s. Oh man, allergies! <laughs> Excuse me a second. And that, to me, in a certain way, was a response to grunge. You know, it's not that grunge wasn't ever soft. Didn't ever have, uh, you know, uh, literary lyrics or delicate lyrics or that it wasn't introspective or that it wasn't clever and, and, and precious in its own way or that it wasn't poppy. There were tons of hooks and things like that. But when you think of grunge, you think of stuff that slams you in the face. The word itself, it's, it's, it's really baked into that word. When you think of twee indie pop, you think of something that kind of invites you in, you know. And... I, I want to read this because I think this is kind of a, a good way to say it. Um, Bell and Sebastian were a part of this movement that took what was existent beforehand and used it as a response to what was existing in the moment there. And I know that's kind of a repeat of what I, I've said a couple of times in this podcast, but I think it bears repeating, uh, partly because I just lost my train of thought and I lost my place in my damn notes. So I you know, wanted to kind of bring it back to the, to the mid thing here. This is why I don't read notes when I'm doing these podcasts, because you, you, you don't want... I don't want my presentation to feel canned or artificial or prepackaged in any way. I do my homework. I write my notes down. You've got the essay if you'd rather read things than listen or watch. But what I talk about, I tend to like it to be like I'm having a conversation at a bar, you know. And unfortunately, there's something that I wanted to say about this, you know, that I wish I could remember. And you'll have to read it down below. But it basically, what it, what it sums up is that if you really listen closely and examine the, the kind of Bell and Sebastian era of indie pop has a lot in common with grunge. Not sonically, certainly, other than maybe certain production values in terms of EQ and things like that. But... The way there was a, you know, the, the, a disaffection, I think is a, is a good word to use here, a disaffection in how things were being expressed, a, court, a, a sort of whatever attitude, even though there were things being talked about, sung about that were very serious, especially on a personal level, very serious. But at the same time, there wasn't sort of a, a, an overly sincere engagement with what was being sung. You know, the grunge, you know, grunge 
had a lot of kind of sarcasm to it and, you know, in your face, fuck you. And this, the twee indie pop had a kind of a laid back, like, yes, of course I care, but in the end, does it really matter? And I know you may not really care either. So I'm just going to be here and I hope that you, you know, come in. And that's, I think, sort of what I wanted to say is that, you know, grunge was sort of like being invited into somebody's basement of, you know, angst and very personal, but be prepared to suffer. And, you know, Bell and Sebastian was kind of like being invited into somebody's living room of ennui, which itself is a form of of, of angst, uh, just maybe not as fiercely expressed. And if you were alive and sentient and you know, absorbing music in the 1990s and into what was going on at the time. You will remember the power that grunge had when it kind of took the world by storm because it was so direct and in your face compared to most of what came before it in at least the latter half of the 1980s. Then you may also remember that the popularity of grunge ran its course to the point where, yes, it did become in some ways a parody of itself uh, towards the end of the 90s, especially in the early O's. It also spawned post-grunge and things that I've talked about before that was equally good music in its own way, both from the bands that started it, the way, you know, for example, the Stone Temple Pilots changed its course a couple of times or even Smashing Pumpkins evolved, uh, or latter-day bands that took some of the mold of grunge and went into, you know, like third, I don't know, second or third wave emo or whatever you want to call it. But the general consensus, and partly this is, it was overkill, overplay, and and partly it's bands trying to cash in, or much more likely record companies trying to cash in, but either one. And partly it was just, there's always room for something new and people are always looking for something new. And even if you're a huge fan of anything, you do well to find an antidote to the thing that you're a fan of. Not because you've grown necessarily tired of the thing you're a fan of, but but because you, you you live a rich and full life that has more than one note to it. You know, you're not just the person who works at their job or the person who is a family person or the person you are with your friends or anything. You're all of those things and can bounce between them in the way that maybe when you've spent a day listening to, you know, metal or grunge or some kind of, you know, louder, more in your face music, you might want to spend a night listening to jazz or classical or folk or whatever it is. Or if you're constantly listening to new music, you might want some comfort food to listen to some old favorites or something like that. When Bell and Sebastian came along, it was one of the things that happened during that period in the mid-90s where all of us were ready for new things. Doesn't mean I didn't still follow, uh, again, Stone Devil Pilots in particular or Smashing Pumpkins, those two really through the latter half of that decade and beyond. But that... I, as much as I loved and appreciated and still appreciate grunge music and its offshoots and all of that, 
I needed an antidote as well. And I had some already, you know, I certainly listened to, you know, 90s uh, hip hop and, and pop and power pop in particular, Fountains of Wayne and Matthew Sweet. But some of those had some things in common with grunge in terms of uh, how they hit you. Whereas Bell and Sebastian or a post-rock band like The Sea and Cake Listen to what I just did. I created, which I don't like to do, a few seconds of silence here. And that's because that's exactly what Bell and Sebastian felt like to me. When I heard them, you were waiting for bands to up the ante or morph or add, you know, new elements to grunge, but it would still just come at you, you know, make you want to jump into the mosh pit or whatever, you know, it is. And they were like, how quiet can we possibly be and still be utterly engaging? Just how amazingly quiet, like to the point where this music could never have existed without amplification because somebody singing at the level that I believe it's Stuart Murdoch sings and sang could not have been heard in a crowd. It doesn't mean that it, uh, it's not, certainly not the first quiet or laid back music ever in existence. It's the whole idea of this, you know, cycles and, and, you know, responses to things that came before it and echoes of what came before. But at the time, it was wholly unexpected that it would not just exist, but rise to a level of popularity. And it felt like the right kind of breath of fresh air that, you know, that I certainly needed at the time and an antidote to every kind of other in-your-face music that I was listening to at the time. And I don't honestly know uh, and only really care a little if anybody else kind of has this view of what went on there because a lot of people get hung up on the influences part of things. Uh, And when I did, you know, my uh, episode on Elephant Six, I talked a lot about that. And I get that Bell and Sebastian uh, have music that harken back to, you know, the chamber pop or, you know, uh, in its own way, indie pop of the 1960s, like the zombies, and that they absolutely were influenced or harken back to bands like the Smiths from the 80s and that they had that kind of like 60s slash 80s influence going on in everything they did. And... You do hear that. You absolutely, like, if you hear, uh, uh, you know, no one told me about her, the way she lied, like, that that song, man, that does have a very similar sonic quality to things that Bell and Sebastian did and do, you know? Or if you listen to the Smiths and the kind of, there's a little bit of, yeah, I'm singing this and I do care, but I really don't care, kind of feel with everything the very controversial Morrissey said at the time, which itself at the time, you know, with Johnny Marr and and the rest of the band was a revelation because it was, again, intending to kind of do that, well, we are going to be anti-punk in a way. Um, And hindsight is 2020, whatever, but take it in the spirit in which it was created in the context, you know, of of that decade. Bell and Sebastian did the same thing, but did it their own way, did it differently. And to me, it was, yes, of course, I think I felt that and heard that familiarity for music that I had already loved 
So it was exciting to hear that. But honestly, listening to them never made me feel like I was listening to that older music. It felt new and fresh to me because they were moving the conversation forward. As I always say, they were doing something different. And uh, doing something, taking something old and doing it in a different way. You know, that's... That's how I see that, you know, that the title that I gave this when Quiet Was the Revolution applies here. Because we often think of anything related to a revolution as loud and, and attention grabbing and noisy, but you can be just as attention grabbing by, you know, taking a moment of silence and then moving in and speaking intimately. That's been done thousands, hundreds of thousands of times by orators and in in scenes in film and television and on stage when you're able to do it, you know, and still project. Uh, if you're mic'd up, which I always prefer, and that's what Bell and Sebastian did. Um, let me get really quick to a discography of them. I don't want to go too far into it. I think they've released at least uh, 10 albums, right? 96 Tiger Milk, which I have here. I'm pointing to it for you listeners. It's got a crack in the cover because it's an old CD. It's a very old CD. Uh, I probably didn't buy this until, shoot, man, 2000 is my guess because I believe what happened was I started to get into, you know, uh, Bell and Sebastian with this album here which I'm pointing to, Fold Your Hands, Child, You Walk Like a Peasant, which is still to this day, I believe, my favorite album of theirs, although I will talk about the new one that they just released, which I've always found exciting. The band's been around for a while, still releasing music. Uh, I'm going to talk more about that in my wrap-up at the end of the year, my kind of catch-up episode like I did uh, last year. If you're feeling sinister, from also from 96, uh... Tiger Milk kind of documents the formation of the band in a way. And, and the second one is often called their best album. I'm sure I've heard it at some point. And I think the reason I don't have it here is because I loaned it to somebody and I never got it back. I hope they enjoy it. The Boy with the Arab Strap, which I have right here, named after another indie band, Arab Strap. They didn't appreciate being name-checked there. I don't know if they've changed their mind since then, <laughs> but at the time they really didn't like that. Again, fold your hands, child, you walk like a peasant. That's my fave. That's the one whose songs I remember the most. When I look back on the track listing, I was like, oh, man, yeah, 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 yeah. This is, I think, the you know the album where I fell in love with them. But it was also, uh, to me, the last of their classic period. And they had that kind of personnel shift um, when, you know, Stuart Mark broke up and the woman left and someone else came along and some other things happened and they started to bring in other influences and stuff like that, which good for them. Uh, but the last thing I ever bought of theirs was this uh, extended, this single here, Jonathan David. Uh, Bell and Sebastian sing Jonathan David from 2001. And, uh, you know, don't really have much of a memory of it. I think at the time I was having a shift and moving into other things like Hot Hot Heat and, you know, um, the White Stripes and all those kind of people, Strokes, you know, whatever was happening in the early O's. Storytelling was meant to be the soundtrack for a Todd Salons film, but only six minutes of it were used. That's 2002, Dear Catastrophe Waitress in 2003. Trevor Horn, 
who freaking reinvented Yes for the 80s and just uh, you, you, when you hear Trevor Horn, you think 1980s music, produced that 2003 album of theirs. The Life Pursuit 2006 is supposedly their most successful album to date. So 10 years on is when they had their biggest selling album. Four years later in 2010, Write About Love was almost equally successful. They came back five years later in 2015, Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance, which as the title suggests was more dance oriented. And I read something that said that uh, Stuart Murdoch has always, had always wanted to incorporate more Northern soul into his music. And that certainly happened in, in the couple of albums there in the 2000s. Days of the Bagnold Summer was also a soundtrack from 2019. Haven't listened to it yet. I haven't done my chronography here for um, Bell and Sebastian, but I do plan to do that. I'm going to re-listen to all of their stuff that I've heard and listen to stuff I haven't heard. A bit of previous, released this year, their new album, to me, sounds very natural, not at all forced, not like they're deliberately trying to recreate anything they've done, more like they're taking bits of everything they've done and putting it all together, which is interesting to me because a couple of the albums that have been released by older bands this year, including Red Hot Chili Peppers, I feel like bands are doing that. And I wonder if it's because through the pandemic, you do your own reflection and retrospection and, and all of that, and you fall back in love with your identity and various identities that you've had through your past. Uh, and what you come up with is an amalgamation, a combination of all of those things. And I really feel like a bit of previous is that for them and is probably at the moment, I won't say it's my second favorite album of theirs behind Fold Your Hands Child because I don't remember the other ones well enough. I'm going to have to listen to all of them, but I will say that it is at least in the top three or four. Uh, it's absolutely worth a listen if you're into this kind of music at all. Um, quick side note, two side notes. Before I get into connecting this with Rex Music, which you know is obviously one of my favorite parts of any podcast, and that is that Bell and Sebastian kind of foreshadowed the indie pop explosion in the in like the twenty early twenty tens with uh, the I don't know why I always remember this as being the one that pops into mind. Gautier is somebody that I used to know was one of the uh, most successful indie pop songs, you know, certainly of the time. And when you fast forward and go to bands and artists like artists like Mitski and Japanese Breakfast Today, you really hear that pedigree in that music. Now, indie pop as a genre uh, has been around, um, I think, since the at least the 70s, if not longer. But uh, early the 70s, um, and has had its own iterations throughout every decade. But it's always, there's always a change when something that's been around for a while hits the mainstream. And even though Bell and Sebastian had their successes, they didn't necessarily hit the level of success that indie pop would start to have in the 2010s, carrying all the way through to today. There's actually probably more indie pop out there you know, Lord and and even Billie Eilish than there ever has been, which makes me 
uh, excited for what's coming next because it's been around a while now and I have a kind of feeling what's coming next and I've talked about it before. Uh, but it's, you know, I wanted to make that connection because I think that there is a connection there. And also that the one band that kind of straddled all these changes from grungy, kind of harder edged to power pop to uh, softer, in some ways folksier, but definitely quiet and introspective to electronic post-rock, sea and cakey kind of stuff was Radiohead from the late 80s through till whenever. Every time they made a change, they were kind of mapping out in a very personal way these changes in the, in the zeitgeist. And they certainly didn't do it because they were following anybody, to my knowledge. But they do kind of encapsulate that, that, you know, that shift. And I remember being intrigued by post-rock when it started to become a thing. And yeah, it had been around since at least the 80s, if not longer than that. Uh, you can even go back as far as Brian Eno from the 70s and say, well, he was sort of proto-post-rock. Uh, <clears throat> but as intrigued as I was by it, I was also a little bit annoyed by it. Because I was like, every five, ten years, somebody says rock is dead and here's the new thing. Um, nothing ever really dies. Yes, if you were a music lover, you know that I just gave you the definition of the acronym for the band NERD, Pharrell Williams Band. NERD stands for nothing ever really dies. I didn't intend to do that. So I don't script things. See? Fun stuff. So, yes, when Bell and Sebastian came along, and when I discovered them, let's say, it was at a point when I had been doing grunge influence music. I had been doing power pop. I had been doing uh, even pop rock. I don't even know what else you want to call it. Uh, funky kind of music. And even though I had done quieter music prior to that, I really started to embrace that side more, uh, say, with a song like On the Way Down, which is more depressing than most of what Bell and Sebastian have done, but it's that same idea of being cool with being quiet, you know, but it's, but it's not a precious song. To me, even though I've not done a ton of songs like that, the perfect embodiment of the influence that Bell and Sebastian has had on me is a more recent song called The Garden. Uh, it's from Rex's album, Sympathy for the Weird. And it is in its own way one of the weirdest songs from any of the weird objective albums. It is, It was intended, and it is, I believe, to be as laid back as humanly possible, and certainly as possible for me, who tends to be a little more frenetic uh, and, and demonstrative in many ways. The way that I produced it was that kind of laconic, like it is moving along and there is momentum and, and you are feeling it, but you're going to have to really be, you know, welcome to be invited in to the garden, I guess. And the way I sang it was certainly, there's not an ounce of projection in anything I sing. And even though I have a different accent, certainly, I'm not from Glasgow, the way Bell and Sebastian are, and had slightly different intentions for the lyrics, you will 100% hear the influence there. And I urge you to stay tuned next minute or two after I wrap this up to listen to that song and to also go ahead and check it out 
on the link that I gave you there on Rex Bandcamp page or on any streaming service and add it to your playlist. Why not? But if you're a fan of Bell and Sebastian, I'm pretty darn certain that you're going to be a fan of the song Garden, The Garden uh, from Rex Sympathy for the Weird. And uh, I appreciate you listening to it either way. Were you into these these uh, guys, the Bell and Sebastian? Do you remember that impact that they had the way I do, or do you not? Do you put them in a different context than a response to the kind of in-your-faceness of a lot of the music that was happening at the time? Were there other quiet bands of that era, or of a, even of a different era, that you felt had the same impact on you? They were a response to what was going on in a way that kind of pulled you in, you know? Um the 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 kind of things that were happening with bands like Led Zeppelin in the late 60s and then you had somebody like James Taylor. You know, so that, like that kind of uh, dichotomy. Uh, what do you think of Bell and Sebastian's new album, A Bit of Previous? I The more I listen to it, the more I enjoy it. I listened to the uh, early release of kind of the three singles and I liked, you know, was particularly one of them on there, but the album itself is just very rich and diverse and heartfelt, I think. Again, it's I don't think it's any kind of a ploy. I think it was them intentionally doing the things they wanted to do. And I'd love to know your opinion on this, your opinion on anything that I have said, agree or disagree. What did I miss? What did you love? Because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Two more episodes left this season. I'll see you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 